We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're going to be looking at the 1968 <clears throat> Nigel Neal BBC teleplay, The Year of the Sex Olympics. I'm looking forward to hearing what you pull out of this one. <clears throat> okay. In a future sooner than you think, the world is divided into two groups. The elite high drives, who live in apathy control, and the low drives, the masses who live outside. Those in control spend their time living a luxurious life and providing televised media programming designed to keep the masses docile and apathetic. Nat is the producer of the top-rated daily show Sports Sex, a program of live sex acts. Nat is having a sexual relationship with Mish, the hostess of the program. In addition to producing the live broadcast of the program, Nat's duties also require that he screen the potential contestants for the program. This is a big year for Nat, as it will soon be the time for the Sex Olympics, a program he will be in charge of. Coordinator Ugg, the controller of programming, comes to visit. He's from the old days, and he remembers why they do what they do. In the old days, they used to prevent things from getting on television, something they called censoring. Then they learned that by showing things, people may do and didn't do those things. In short, sex is not to do. Sex is to watch. The birth rate of the overpopulated planet started plummeting. It's an important job that they do, keeping the world cool. The latest computer assessment of Nat indicates things aren't so good. He's not as cool as he should be. Ugg wants to help, but Nat can't quite express why he feels the way he does. He literally hasn't the words. 40 to 45 sexual partners ago, Nat used to be with Deanie who now runs a program called The Hungry Angry Show, where people eat and throw food at each other, which keeps food consumption down amongst the low drives. Deanie has concerns about their daughter, Ketan, now nine years old. Children are reared in nurseries, but parents sometimes visit. Deanie thinks that Ketan may have been identified as a low drive and may be cast out. Deanie also has a current sexual partner, Kin, the man who does the drapes on the art sex show. Double entendre warning! Kin really does the drapes. Get your minds out of the gutter. He's deeply troubled and wants to do pictures. Pictures that make you hurt. Nat is fascinated with the idea of a picture that can hurt and agrees to see Kin's work. Meanwhile, Ugg has a new mandate down from the computer. The low drives need something more. Computer thinks they need to laugh, so all programs are retooled, even sports sex and art sex, to include humor. The initial efforts don't go well. Kin shows his picture to Nat and Mish. They are horrible, distorted drawings of faces in pain. Nat cannot take his eyes off of them. Mish, however, is repulsed by them. Nat knows they can never be shown to the low drives, and he tells Kin to give it up. Kin cannot, though. He is driven to convey his feels to the people. So he breaks into the sports sex studio during broadcast and attempts to lower himself down in front of a camera and show his pictures. Security chases him, and he falls to a horrible death on camera. The audience loves it because it's funny. Something bad happens to someone else, not them. Another case of watching, not doing. Laser, 
the clearly ambitious sub-producer of sports sex, suggests that maybe that's the angle they need. People watching random things happen to other people. Nat comes up with the idea of putting a few people on an island with no contact with the outside world and broadcasting what they do 24-7. Deanie, distraught over Kin's death, volunteers to go. Nat agrees to go, too. Perhaps this is the answer to the yearning he's had. It will be called the Live Life Show. Deanie and Nat take Ketten with them so that they can form something that used to be called a family. On the island, they have a hut with no modern conveniences, wild sheep and rabbits, minimal supplies and seeds to get them started, and a self-destructing guidebook to help them along their first couple of weeks. They also have a camera in the ceiling of their hut, which broadcasts continually. The family begins to bond, but then they find Grells and Betty in their hut. They are inhabitants from the other side of the island. Nat feels betrayed by control and is upset, but Deanie suggests they could learn a lot from people who already know how to survive and eat on the island. Ugg is concerned that Laser has broken the deal with Nat, but Laser explains, I'm just setting the scenery. It's a show. Stuff's gotta happen. Back on the island, Grells teaches Nat to catch crabs, but while he's gone, Ketten falls and seriously injures herself. Deanie does an impromptu job of sewing her wound shut, but they have no knowledge of medicine. Ketten had been scared by something, which we learn was Betty, trying to muster up the courage to come warn them about Grells. Nat, now outraged at the interference of having others on the island, destroys the watching eye in their hut. He does not know that there are other hidden cameras. Laser remarks, They think the show has ended. Now it has just begun. Control is ecstatic with the audience reaction. Fear and worry. The audience are eating it up because they can experience it without it happening to them. Laser thinks soon they'll get to experience grief, too. Next morning, they find a strangely docile Grell sleeping on their doorstep. He explains that Betty is dead. Perhaps she fell getting eggs. They run him off, believing he had something to do with her death. Back at Control, this is confirmed. Grells is a psychopath who was put into exile 12 years ago when he killed someone during auditions for the Sex Olympics. If only that murder had been televised, they'd have known about this breakthrough in television 12 years earlier. Grells gets a temporary sense of peace after a kill, but Control knows he'll soon be coming back for more murder. Ketten dies of the infection. Deanie, and Nat in particular, struggle with understanding grief. He feels it, but he cannot understand it. They bury Ketten, and while they're out, they suspect Grells is nearby. Nat goes defensive and sends Deanie back to the hut, but inside, Grells is waiting for her. He bolts the door shut and begins killing her. Nat desperately tries to break the door down, and when he does, he brutally murders Grells with an axe. The audience is over the moon with excitement. When Grells is dead, Nat turns to Deanie and discovers that she too is dead. His grief is unconsolable. The audience appreciation is at a peak, and Laser's triumph of television is complete. Only Controller Ugg stands in horror, screaming, He's still alive! Um... <laughs> I'm just um uh, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just start here with a little little um, preface that um, we're probably gonna talk about a couple of things that people have identified and I think are pretty obvious of the prescience of of some of the stuff in this writing by Nigel Neal. Um, but I don't think people have identified that this man also must have invented clickbait because a <laughs> there are no sex Olympics in this show. Oh. But the title makes you go, well, uh, hmm, uh-huh. And I'm willing to bet that when I post this episode of the podcast, because I, I do see, you know, 
some people don't like Battlestar Galactica. Some people don't like Space 1999. This is a this is a danger that I've always known about on on this podcast is that some shows are more popular than others, and so our listenership actually goes up and down based on what show episode, which amazes me because I just download every episode of every podcast I listen to. I may not listen to it, but you know, I at least they at least all come down into my podcatcher. But I'm willing to bet that the year of the Sex Olympics is going to go up just from the name alone. And and that's um, and I'm just going to say right now, I'm, I've always been aware of this problem that, you know, you may not be listening to every episode of the show, but but I do this for artistic purposes, not for ratings. Just I'm going out there for that one right now. Anyway, so um, what did you think of this uh, interesting one off BBC piece by by the, the great Nigel Neal? Uh, oh, gosh. You do so, you, yes. Well, you do this for artistic reasons and not for ratings. Is very much the kind of the mission of uh, the a kind of statement of what Nigel Neal is about. Perhaps in terms of this is really quite a sort of vicious yeah. critique of the kind of television that I mean, it is it is quite rightly commented on for its extraordinary prescience in terms of the rise of reality or so-called reality television. But that wasn't what he was targeting, I guess. I mean, he was going for the lowbrow stuff, but that isn't what lowbrow stuff looked at, looked like at the time. No, um, but, uh, you know, I, I think perhaps it's reasonably well-known. Nigel Neal and the BBC, towards the end, didn't get along. Um, there was a there Nigel was a... Neal and the BBC, at the time he was brought on to write this, didn't get along. Correct, correct. He, um... Uh, he felt he'd gotten shafted with the Quatermass, which was, I guess, one of the BBC's first unequivocal hit drama series that, that just really shot them through. And I think he got 60 pounds or something bonus for it. <laughs> and and he, was, he was a bit salty about it. And he had become increasingly upset with the BBC about ratings versus art and uh, his treatment as, a, as an artist. And, um, you know, he, re- he turned down doing this. And they came back and the controller of the BBC got him some sort of a bonus, like 3,000 pounds for his Quatermass work, which was years before, because he was feeling so slighted and they wanted him to come back and write. And, and he wrote this. They, they, they'd given him nothing for the, for the film rights. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and that's right. They gave him nothing. They sold the film rights and he got nothing for that. And he wasn't happy. And I don't think he was happy with the results of the films. And, I mean, all sorts of, all sorts of reasons that he was not happy with the BBC. <laughs> and I guess they turned I him loose some, and he some wrote things this. Make, some things make Nigel Neal unhappy. Yeah. I mean, many things make him unhappy, it seems. Well, um, and you but could this, argue this was makes him his, the artist he is. <laughs> it, well, I guess, I guess the it does. And, I mean, this is, this is... This is uh, the director general concerned is Hugh Green, which um, is important in other respects. But the 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 kind of the art that in Sex Olympics is um, is being uh, championed for want want of a better word by Hodder, I guess, mm-hmm. represents the idea of actually something so, some creative work having actual merit because it. It creates a reaction. It creates Challenges? a response. It's challenging, indeed. And Whoa, okay. So, I'm, I'm, go ahead. Go ahead, now. Well, on. in that in that in that respect, I think Nigel Neal is 
is um, looking looking to I mean something like 1984 he mm-hmm. would regard as being of artistic merit and I mean we know he admired it because he wrote the screenplay he, he wrote indeed and uh, and on the other hand something like Doctor Who he would consider to be kind of just mindless entertainment mm-hmm. keeping keeping the masses apathetic yes yes yeah absolutely I, I what I was going to try to interject there I. And and maybe we can talk a little further about it. But a couple of the names in this program: Kin, Kin Hodder, Kinsman, the Kinsman of the Writer. It's like this is this is me. <laughs> That's what he's saying in in this show. Uh-huh. And the director, the controller of the BBC, Ugh, <laughs> Control, <laughs> a caveman who who just cares about what the computers tell him in the ratings, and he doesn't see what's happening coming up below from Laser. A guy so perfectly focused on the ratings and, and the result yeah, well, that yes. it's not. I mean, those are those are pretty on the nose names. I cannot figure out what Nat and Deanie, if anything, have any bearing on, unless they're just normal people. But but those three in particular, I'm just like it. It, it has to be commentary. It, he has to be being making comment there. Yeah, I mean, I. It's not. Uh, it's it's broad. It's broad. Um, but it's. As we, as we've said, it's it's remarkable how how accurately he depicted the direction that TV was going in. And although it may look obvious in retrospect, I guess it probably wasn't something that was apparent to everyone at the time. And I think back to twenty five years ago. I mean, we are talking about a show that was made fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. It's quite remarkable. Twenty five years ago, so. 25 years after it was made we were looking at Japanese uh, game shows that were all about doing uh, you know eating insects and doing all sorts of disgusting acts on camera for entertainment and clips of that were being shown on the Clive James show and we were all going oh ha 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 laughing at uh, how 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 the Japanese would just screen this stuff and pass it for entertainment and And I love Takeshi's Castle too (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the past, yeah. in you know, in the in the twenty five years following, we we've, we've seen all the rest of it, all of the the I'm a celebrity, get me out of here stuff in the jungle, which isn't survive. I'm not I mean, quite sure it's the live life show, but do they have Survivor over there? Is that one of the shows? Survivor, I, I'm I'm aware of. I haven't. Okay, I, I haven't mean that's just put them on seen a, it. I'm an island and it. sure, and so hard to think is someone didn't maybe get the idea from watching the live life show but the the similarities with big brother are so extraordinary it seems remarkable that it took its name from orwell rather than neil also the, big brother came from norway sweden uh, or norway did it first and then britain licensed it to do theirs i thought i thought it was holland but i uh, holland it could be holland I, it was it was one of those sorry <laughs> It's one of those I, countries in that part of Europe. Well, no, I, I I could be entirely wrong. I do remember I do remember watching the first episode, and the I mean the extraordinary thing about Big Brother at the time was that it was at least here in the UK it was being made and broadcast by mm-hmm. Channel Four, which for those who yeah. who don't know the networks that we have over here is a um, as a, a public service broadcaster, publicly owned broadcaster. So it has a slightly different remit from the more commercial channels like Channel 5, who now make it, um, who are basically about the 
making making the profit for the shareholders and therefore chasing ratings is a part of that and so the way that this was presented in the UK was that it was in some way a social experiment and that there was some kind of academic merit to this <laughs> put, okay. putting people and you can laugh but obviously they knew what they were about was entertainment but what they were what they were suggesting was wouldn't it be interesting because nothing has ever been done like this before apart from in Holland or Norway or wherever yeah. it was where you actually literally put cameras on the people for 24 hours a day and watch everything they do exactly like the live life show and at since then reality television has basically been seen as being cast in the mold of big brother i i would kind of argue actually that was the end of reality tv reality tv was the the kind of um verite documentaries where fl- fly on the wall stuff mm-hmm. the the hospital watch stuff or the the kind of um driving school uh, nonsense whereas big brother is basically a game show so so and, oh, go ahead. well i was just i was just going to finish by saying so is the live life show a game show in the sense that the, the the kind of suspense element of big brother interactive even is that you vote off someone until you have a winner and in the live life show you kill them people all. get killed off until you have a winner who is essentially the last person surviving so i i don't I, i'm i'm gonna say that it must have been big brother must have been 1999 or 1999 um when it was on in britain um and i'll explain that in a second but but prior to that i remember when the the european one came out and they had a a a website where they had live feeds to some of the cameras Mm -hmm. at the time which you know back then so let's say 98 that was not as common as perhaps it came to be and i can remember tuning into that a couple times thinking this is both weird and oddly it's almost like a car accident and it wasn't about people arguing or it wasn't about it wasn't about anything like that it was just it was the the idea of watching other people without them knowing you were watching them uh, it, it except they I, I did know i well they didn't know i personally was watching them right so that's i mean that, that that's the difference fair enough the difference between that you know it's like these these people sitting at this table talking in a language i don't understand don't realize there's a guy in arizona sitting here looking at you and and that's a i don't want to use the word compelling because that's not quite what it is but it's there's a fascination to it it's like okay that's that's weird there's no no value here there is nothing i am watching of any value whatsoever and yet you know occasionally you'd pop in and tune and go well what's happening over there well nothing i i now and i don't know enough about the 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 european big brother other than that because it was in a foreign language that i don't speak and it was something that you weren't on tv and you know it's just something you popped into once in a while as it happens when my wife and i went to britain to go to do the millennium stuff while it was still up which is why i know it must have been 1999 2000 no i thought that's when they tore it down they were originally going to tear it down on 2000 19 Whatever the year was that they built just it. Just to be clear, to, I don't know when you came over here, but Big I Brother, I thought I've was, just been checking, was broadcast in the UK from March 2000. And it must have been 2000. It was, it was it developed earlier and, and had already been shown in the Netherlands by it, the time it, it was It had to here. be because it was on. It was one of the shows we actually watched sitting in our hotel room in London, uh, an episode or two. 
So sometime well, after March 2000. Well, it was definitely uh, July, August when we were there. So because um, of the, the time of the year. So, yeah, and then it makes. Yes, yeah, sorry. Premiered in July. Premiered in July. Yeah, it was very it was very new. And I remember, you know, because you could understand what was going on and it was pretty mundane except for and British viewers will know the name, Nasty Nick, who was the guy who was basically trying to cheat on the show. And Trails. hmm, well, Trails, the psychopath. Yeah. And and at the time, perhaps foolishly, and I don't know that this has ever been proven one way or the other or even accused it would never occur to me that he wasn't just doing that because he was a jerk or that maybe it had been planned by the producers and i think that's another piece of this reality tv show not only do they see the rise of reality tv in this program put them on an island and let's see if people will watch it yes they will but they also saw the idea of the producer stirring up the ant's nest to make better television it it it's a, it's amazing that, you know, without having conducted that experiment, Nigel Neal has come up with step one, and then without seeing the, re- the actual results of people doing this, also came up with step two, which was starting to manufacture drama on the program. Yes. And because basically whatever I saw on the, the, the European version of it, uh, nobody was manufacturing any drama there, as far as I can tell. Like it was, it was pretty much people sitting around talking, uh, always. You know, just you know, there were no fights and no no those slap fests, no, you know, just of course the language barrier. Maybe maybe that's how they do that. But uh, I, I'm 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 just I, I'm amazed. I'm, I'm truly amazed at the at the um, foresight on on this show. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so let's um. Let's look at the other end of this. This is the television for the lowest common denominator. So the, the BBC at one point was live TV. And by 1968, the BBC was probably not at all live TV, except maybe the news <laughs> programs, right? I, I'm, I, I, I don't think very much in the way of drama, at least, would have been live by 1968. News programs, maybe you know, stuff, but yeah, but not all sorts of things are live even today. It, but it's it's a it's a a form of drama production born out of necessity mm-hmm. and it obviously has its pitfalls because basically you're doing theatre. Mm-hmm. It's just that you can do it from different camera angles. So, so can you imagine um and writer, in this case Neil's situation, and I'm and I am obviously trying to interpret his line of reasoning. Um you you do a work, you put the work out, the you know, the BBC commissions a, a piece, you put the thing out, it's very popular. The BBC changes, perhaps, what they choose to commission for the next show. Perhaps. I mean, I, I think they're not, they were not supposed to. I think they were supposed to be truly merit-driven programming. Yeah. But, you know, if you put out merit-driven programming and no one is watching, there's no point in spending the money to put out programming. That would be one argument but, in that case. So, well, television, television was like a self-adjusting course, right? They were, they were you, you put a I show and they, go ahead. There's no doubt about it in the sense that the reason that the reason that Neil was asked to contribute this episode to this series was because Quatermass had been such a success mm-hmm. in the ratings. So we have is is it I find it interesting and and maybe telling that all the programs we see are live in this when when in reality at the BBC at the time all these programs would not be live they'd be they'd be studio 
made and recorded oh, and, and wow. broadcast out. And I think it's because of the that audience monitor. Like, you only can go back to tweaking the show minute by minute. we got to tweak those ratings every second. Everything that they're seeing, we've got to micromanage it to keep this at the optimum audience response. So it's, a, it's another part of his you know, kind of the slippery slope of what they're doing with the way they commission shows and the way they bring people in to, to write and what they want them to write and what, what goes on the air could... Well, but I think you could, you could see that in a couple of ways. I mean, one would be that if, if, you, if you look at the, to- at the time that this was written, it was a few years since the majority, the vast majority of, of drama, TV drama, would have been broadcast live or mm-hmm. at the very least recorded as live. Um, we know that, for example, Great Mass Experiment was live, and but that was so, quite a few years back. Well, okay, but it's 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 going to be something he's familiar with in his. Mm-hmm. Ma- it's a it's a it's a few years back. What was it? Late fifties? I think late fifties. Yeah, I'm looking. No, actually, right. it, it was probably earlier than that. It's probably early fifties. Thinking about it, because they were they were spoofing Quatermass on the Goon Show, which only ran until nineteen sixty. So, and that was Quatermass in the Pit. So okay, we're going back early fifty, but we know they were still doing stuff as live, as live. Okay, fifty-three. But for example, uh, first series of the Avengers, a number of episodes uh, were live. Um, we know uh, so that was sixty-one, and we know that Doctor Who was being recorded as live in sixty-three. So it's it's the past, but it's the recent past. And so someone working in television would be very familiar with the idea of stuff. So one possible explanation. The other, the, the, the other way of looking at it, the way I think you're looking at it, and the way that, again, just shows how prescient Neil is, is to think about some of the tech that is involved in stuff like TV election debates and all, this, all the people in the spinning room looking at the worm as you actually see the live audience reaction to your candidate's performance. And it's a bit like that. It, I mean, even now, it's not something that is actually that fast in TV entertainment, but it is literally that fast when you're talking about uh, political hustings and the like. That's true. That's true. I, I, it's just, this is just a, a, a fascinating piece of work. And I had to... I, so I admit I had to watch it twice because I found... A lot of the dialogue difficult to understand. <laughs> um, I, I eventually, whether it's the sound mix or whether it's the combination of the fact that that they're that they're British, that they're putting on a funny Ooh. patois, uh, yes. you know that 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 jargon that they're speaking. So, well, those first lines of Brian Cox's, I thought he's doing an American accent. Me too. And and he's doing it really, really badly. <laughs> Yes, that um, was my thought. Um, but it wasn't It wasn't that. I mean, in fairness to him, he passes, well, to my ear as an American, I guess maybe not the best ear to judge, but, you know, in things like uh, um, Jason Bourne, mm. he sounds perfectly American to me. Um, I haven't seen him in Jason Bourne. I saw him in um, The uh, Adventure in Space and Time. I wasn't uh, hugely convinced by his Canadian-American accent there, but, but you know. He, well, he was kind of playing a character too. To, it would take more to convince you than yeah. me. Um, but you know, I'm perfectly. It, it's I, I rarely hear Americans that can pass a good British accent, but you can frequently hear British who can pass an acceptable American accent. Um, 
Hugh Laurie, for example, actually yeah. comes pretty darn close. Um, you know, you, you know it's not here <laughs> when you listen to it. It's like, yeah, it's, but it easily could be a dialect of somewhere up northeast. And you just, yeah, all right, yeah, and I, I'll take it within the range. But anyway. Um, and I, I also found the actual dialogue itself, or the, the kind of his version of Newspeak, and I can't, I can't help drawing the parallels in the sense that oh, it's clearly quite influenced by 1984. But um, it seemed to me that it was quite inconsistent because rather than it being about, I think it was intended to be about vocabulary changes, but actually that didn't, and, and it's certainly much more difficult to put across in a screenplay than it is in a novel. It didn't really seem clear to me quite how the language had changed, whether it was internally consistent. Sometimes it seemed just normal to my ear, and sometimes it seemed a bit like caveman speak. Yeah, I finally just put headphones on <laughs> to listen to it, so that I could, and that helped a lot. So um, I was listening to it in headphones anyway. So I, 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 I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know about the sound mix, but I, I will say, I, I only, I've only watched this once, mm-hmm. and. Um, and actually only within the last 24 hours. And watching it, my initial reaction to a lot of it was to focus quite a bit on the really very minor plot holes and s- some, of, some of the sort of, let's say, production issues, but you know the, the, the nature of the production being as it was a, a, a production in 1968. And since then, and in particular reading a bit about it and and uh, reading Nancy Bank Smith especially my perspective on it has changed okay and so i, I i'm i'm at the I, I mean one of the things when i was actually watching it was i was i found that for example tony fogel's performance was very very mannered and which one is was, tony fogel uh playing uh nat nat okay you mr unibrow got it yeah yeah <laughs> And and uh, I mean actually a number of them the the and uh, Vickery Turner's voice unbelievably oh. annoying especially yes it was you're having to listen to it through headphones and uh, all of the kind of generally speaking all the kind of wide eyed acting that was going on <laughs> okay and, well that goes back to to, to uh, Nat's character then because uh, he had nothing but wide eyed yeah he was doing quite a lot of it um, but uh, you know Deanie did a fair bit of widening the eyes. Um, I kind of feel like what I what I get watching this in 2018 on a on a laptop on a train, uh, and that's not important other than it's just it's a different world of the mm-hmm. way uh, technology has changed the way we consume these things, and to to compare this and and this is one of the thing. I mean, Nancy Bank Smith is the best television critic of all time, bar none, and so it was. I, 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 I couldn't find her original review of Year of the Sex Olympics, but she reviewed it when it was first shown in 1968. And then later on, she did a, a later retrospective review of it, but she also referred to it when she reviewed the first broadcast of Big Brother and, you know, kind of drew some of those obvious parallels. And so that, that kind of put me in thinking about what, what must this have been like watching it in 1968 i mean the extraordinary power this must have had then even if you didn't realize because and she and she said she didn't because she didn't know what would happen in subsequent years (laughs) but 
even if you didn't realise how prescient it was. And then your kind of reflection on it and how it changes over time in realising that. And obviously, the 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 importance of it wasn't recognised at the time because otherwise they wouldn't have junked it. (laughs) Yet yet another show that has got thrown away and we're left with just a... I mean, we're fortunate that there is anything at all, but lucky for us that they found a a copy of the the black and white transcription, presumably for for the overseas transmission. But what must it have been like to see this for real in colour in 1968? Yeah, I really want to know what colour all those people were. Because they're all obviously painted, and I, and, I can't and, tell yeah. are they like all gold or are they all different colors or or they they look they look like it's some kind of shiny I've shiny paint on their faces, two. but 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 how psychedelic are their are their costume? And there's a cracking cracking Nancy Bank Smith line um, about the costumes, um, not 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 the psychedelic aspects of the patterning on them, but the the fact that she said first. It looks very much like Blake 7, due to the wardrobes department's ingrained conviction that men in the future will wear loud shirts but no trousers. <laughs> yeah, they are kind of wearing sort of long tunics, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, okay, I, I'm sure that you're... Uh, th- this is this is interesting looking at it in retrospect because this is another example of seeing a science fiction show that was giving us a, let's call it a warning... And a warning not heeded, or a warning that came to pass. Uh, and you've you have not seen this. I have not. I didn't see this until the last twenty four hours as well. And and this has been on our slate for for ages to do, and we've just finally gotten around to it. And it just never bubbled, and it never bubbled to the top. And it's you know we 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 cannot put our minds in the set of not living in the world where shows like Big Brother exist, mm. and. So it, it it it's really hard to look at this as a warning and and think what other people do and I'll, and I'll I carry this a step extract this a little bit um, I, I'm reasonably sure but if I'm wrong correct me that as uh, um, a person who who likes a good logical uh, argument that you are probably very familiar with common logical fallacies mm-hmm. straw man and whatnot false equivalency um, one of them is. The slippery slope, mm-hmm. right? Where you you Beloved say something, the Daily Mail. Yeah, you say something like, uh, "If um, if we allow gay marriage, pretty soon pedophiles will just be able to do whatever they want to children." And the next thing will be you're allowed to marry your horse. Yes, right. There, and there's one that definitely has come up. Uh, I think I remember that one in Britain, <laughs> somewhere. Somebody saying that, but I the pedophiles one is the one that comes up over here, um, and. That is not a valid form of argument. You, you must you must address the you must address the argument based on the reality that exists on the ground, not what you think might just go crazy. But on the other hand, there is this particular branch of science fiction that is exactly that. It is the slippery slope branch of science fiction. If we take it and we run it down the line to a, a, a ridiculous and absurd extreme that will never happen because this is science fiction, we can do crazy <laughs> stuff. It will show people, you know, this isn't what's going to happen. But but you get the feel about the BBC controllers listening too much to to their ratings and the computers and the producers being too focused on the wrong thing and the uh, you know and the artists screaming to get out in this fantasy that will never happen because that's crazy and so i i really don't know i mean if i were watching this 
I don't know that it would be as powerful in 1968 to me because I would just go, okay, well, I get what he's saying. Yeah, I get what he's saying. <laughs> Obviously, we're not going to be doing that, but but I get what he's saying. <laughs> and now, uh, yeah, okay, fine. We haven't quite got we haven't quite got the pornography on there, but doggone, we have Game of Thrones. Oh, we can, we're pretty close. We're darn. I close. mean, I I think if if anything, the thing that the thing that strikes you about this is that he he almost didn't go far enough. At, you know, in terms of it being a slippery slope argument, it doesn't feel like a slippery slope slope argument because it feels like we're lower down the slope. Yeah, in many ways, yeah, we don't don't necessarily have murder on the game shows yet, but you know, give it some time. But I think the thing that I think the reason that it it would be it it would you'd have a different relationship with it if you if you'd seen it fifty years ago or maybe not maybe maybe having had more than twenty four hours to sink in is is um, because I'm already I'm already finding that the way there there are elements of it that I am appreciating more because I'm not as busy now I'm looking back on it thinking oh well that's not quite right or or you know some aspects of of it don't seem right because we have a reality to compare it to mm-hmm. in the sense that the thing that and, and we can argue about whether neil was right or not about this but the thing that he he has um as an obsession with the audience is to do with overpopulation and therefore that the purpose of these shows is going to be about population control and some of the things that he suggests about it the 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 whole what watch not do and vicariousness of it all in some ways seem very true but actually the ratings are not being driven because it's essential to least i don't know maybe i need to think about this more but it it's not essential to stop people from procreating and i say that i say that because it doesn't seem like the most efficient form of contraception and also because the population has grown enormously since <laughs> this was screened. I mean, absolutely exponentially. And, and but, I think... But, but in, that, instead, well, no. just, just to finish that thought, instead it's about um, pursuing uh, advertising and profit, which isn't mentioned at all by Neil in this. That's true. That's true. It isn't mentioned at all. Um, what I was going to say is I think, um, you know, I'm not, not saying that I have any experience in, in this realm, but I think generally speaking, um, some people, when they watch pornography... It it gets them more in the mood rather than out of it. I, I, I've heard. <laughs> well, indeed, <laughs> I, I've heard that. that. I mean, is, I don't. I don't know. I, it's like, I think that's, that's supposedly the popularity idea. of it. But having having said that, I I I seem to remember. I I, I can't quite uh, date it to say whether there is any correlation with the kind of modern ubiquity of of so called reality TV. But the 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 British population is having less sex than it used to. So maybe it is working. Um, but 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 look, but the the kind of bigger perspective on this show that I I'm gaining even with those few hours distance is this sense that um, and again I'm going to quote Bank Smith because she puts it so well um, because she said she didn't find it exceptional watching it at the time largely because she says many other things were also exceptional but slowly though it has grown on me with icy fingers like lichen on the thing in Quatermass. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, I think it does stick with you. I mean, it's in a, it has a kind of a lasting effect like 1984 does. Yeah. And and I guess Neil, I mean, it's, he definitely was a fan of 1984 um, and Brave New World, which he also did apparently did a screenplay for that never got produced. Oh. Um, 
And I think he drew heavily on it. I mean, well, obviously he drew heavily on it, but it, you know, that's not a that's not a crime by any stretch of the imagination. You know, that's that's a very very good place to start off if you want to tell a tale. And it you know, it's it is completely unique. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. I think. I mean, I think it's interesting looking at 1984 and looking at some of the things that are quite different between them and some of the things that are quite similar. So so for example, the the whole idea in this is all about apathy, and I guess there are some similarities uh, in in apathy, but it's to avoid tension, mm-hmm. and part of that is is you know war and those various things that arise when pe- when people get extremely uh, emotional or involved or angry or you know whichever wh- whichever feelings you want to attribute attribute the the rise of these things to whereas in 1984 there is a war whether it's between um eurasia or east asia or whatever it, it it's all about fighting the war and it's about generating those feelings so you know things like the 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 hate stuff and the the chanting at at uh, chanting at, at uh, the so supposed enemies of the state, etc., etc. Um, so that whole idea is quite different. And I'm not really sure how I feel about this idea of the high drive and the, the low drive stuff, whether that, whether that works or whether that rings true looking at it today. It is a little unclear what exactly makes it high drive and low drive. I mean, we do have the sequence where Ketten is pronounced low drive after they did mm-hmm. some tests. So, you know, it, it's not it's not high intelligence, low intelligence. We just have to look at Mish to know that that's not the case. Um, well, is it ambition? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it seems a bit like the 11 plus, which obviously, uh, well, maybe not obviously. Uh, again, for those who are not British and of a certain age, the... Education system in the UK used to be defined by an exam taken at age 11 that determined whether you would go to a still publicly funded but uh, more elite school called a grammar school or secondary modern, which would be for everyone else. And they they were replaced uh, by comprehensives. But, um, you know, that, that, that would have been something that Neil would have been writing about in 1968. That would have, you know, that would have been very relevant yeah that's true that's true and that that would not come across for an american audience um where we we don't do that Um, and to be fair we don't do that anymore unless we're in kent (laughs) uh is kent uh called out for some reason (sighs) yeah well yeah politics politics but um would that be considered conservative politics going back to the old ways it it's certainly our current prime minister assuming that she's still prime minister by the time this goes out, which you know is always hope. By no means a certainty. Uh, has said she's in favour of increasing the number of grammar schools, but it's it's certainly been a, a very contentious thing, and a lot of policies uh, advanced by governments of both colours in the past. Um, gosh, I know at least thirty years have have been quite closely examined for signs of whether they are trying to reintroduce some form of selection because inevitably well-off middle-class parents are always trying to get their kids into the best schools and that that kind of that basically allows the 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 system to perpetuate so Mm. those those who have 
are, are able to pass on what they have to them and their kind, even if it's not based on merit. Oh, you yeah. say them and their kind as if it's not you. <laughs> well, I'm not going to... OK, this is getting very complicated and I'm not going to discuss my okay. own education here, but suffice it to say, I didn't, I didn't spend all of my years in a comprehensive, so that's fair comment. The point, the point here is that what we've got is two high drives who are who who have basically assumed that their daughter will be a high drive but who who find that she is in fact a low drive and only then does that cause them to question the system and i kind of think that's probably neil's point probably but i'm not sure about this whole idea that the the audience the the kind of mass audience is made up of of low drives i'm not sure what that in itself is is supposed to suggest other than reinforcing this idea which i do does make sense to me and i do quite like of the audience as being very much um very much a passive player in all of this and that what they're doing is watching other people as a proxy for doing themselves and that obviously applies to the sex olympics but it also applies to the angry hungry show (laughs) Yeah, indeed, indeed, and just <laughs> just life itself. It it it, it becomes it's a form of displacement, other than anything else. And it's absolutely true. He, I mean, he's on he's on the button. I don't know how much it was true in 1968, but it is absolutely true. The amount to which people will invest themselves in stuff that is nothing to do with themselves. And what a I, I'm I'm at risk of sounding like a snob here. Is completely inconsequential stuff. I, oh yeah. Do not like any of the, you know, Love Island and Celebrity Big Brother and all the rest of it. I, it, it, it's of no interest to me, and yet people, people somehow manage to become massively involved in it. And I, and I know that snobbery because I know that I pour hours of my life into thinking about Doctor Who and the various <laughs> twists and turns in it, rather than doing something much more creative. And I think back to, uh, you know, ag- again. In the first 25 years after this show, you know, my childhood, there was a TV programme for kids called Why Don't You? And it was all about, why don't you turn the TV off? That was its title, the irony of it being on TV. Why don't you turn the TV off and go and do something else? Because because there was then this questioning of TV as this of the, as just this massive sump into which attention and energy and all the rest of it were poured instead of instead of it being about creativity and about unlocking the kind of potential because actually surely doesn't it it suit certain political classes rather and we, well to have we've an always apathetic known this. populace we've always yes, known indeed. this about TV In, I mean Pan- Pan- the British what is the idiot's lantern I mean indeed and indeed. we called it the boob tube same indeed same thing i mean we we've always known this and yet it is still there and it is still very compulsive i wanted to ask how how do you think this if it does or have any reflection on the old roman idea of bread and circuses yes yes as i yeah um you know i mean i I, it's very similar except if i'm correct and i don't have a classical uh background in my in my roman (laughs) Uh, stuff. So what I get is I, is tangential, oh. but that's I as long as you give them food and entertainment. My Latin accent. They're they're go- they're golden. And here in this world, they're not even getting the food. Yeah, <laughs> I mean they and they're obviously getting some, but they're trying to cut the food consumption down by making them watch people throw. And I'm not making this up. Krill custard at each other. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I I loved the credits that put all of those players down as 
custard pie experts. Now, now those were the guys that were in the comedy show, though. Oh, yes. Yes, sorry. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about the Hungry Angry show. The Hungry... <laughs> I don't understand that show, and I hate to say this, but I feel like I ought to be, at least figure out the... be able to figure it out. But they were throwing food at each other because they're angry. They didn't appear to be you know, eating it. I, I can't explain it, but all I can tell you is it makes me feel like I feel when I watch a lot of actual current-day reality TV shows where I, I have no idea what it's supposed to be about. <laughs> it's, it's kind of slightly hypnotic. I, I'd have been but, fine with it if, if Nat hadn't asked Deanie, well, how do you know who ate the most? And she's we put scales underneath them. But like, who's he? Nobody, they're not eating any of it. <laughs> Like they're not eating any of that food. They're just collecting it on their bodies. I, I, I demand that this show be fixed. I'm not going to watch another episode of The Hungry Angry Show if they don't come up with a clearer set of rules for me to follow. I don't know. Oh, go ahead. You sound like well, one of the, I was going to I was going to I was coming back to the the kind of 1984 parallels because it seems to me one of the things that is very similar is so. Okay, Nigel Nigel Neal is. Is there is a, there's a diff there is an, another difference I think perhaps in that he's having a go at ironically given how opposed to this being made Mary Whitehouse was and this is this of course is where Hugh Green comes back in so Mary Whitehouse was chair of something called the Viewers and Listeners Association which basically looked after the um, eternal souls of the viewership mm-hmm. by making sure that they were not shown things that were ungodly and obviously something called year of the sex olympics which does indeed include some nudity and uh you know on-screen sex and so on um though as you say pretty mild by uh, the standards to the point where you're calling it clickbait but um uh hugh, hugh green as dg was her 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 mortal enemy but Neil is criticising... DG is Director the, General, right? The, sorry, Director yep. General, yes. Neil is criticising, unless I've misunderstood this, the permissiveness that's yeah. going on here. Yes, I think so, he's, he's against... Uh, it's not just the permissiveness. He's, he's come out... Um, it, it, the permissive society, the, the counterculture of the youth who are... Of, he of comes up 60s. like an old curmudgeon, yeah, at the, times. The, the kind of decade of love stuff, which he is not keen on and it seems like Orwell is much more concerned about censorship and the 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 of, of Oceana censoring what its citizens can can see and access whereas Neil seems to be su- suggesting that the whole idea of censorship has been forgotten although I suppose there is still a form of censorship in that they are they're losing certain concepts and the ability to even describe certain thoughts. And certainly art itself has kind of vanished, but not through blocking it, more through giving people an alternative that is kind of the, how would, how would you describe it? The kind of high calorie comfort, um, just stuff that people will go to by default. And, and, that seems to be his criticism rather than the idea that people are being forbidden stuff. Mm-hmm. Although there does seem messages. to be a suggestion of censorship when you get the, 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 um, the art that is too difficult to handle. I, I, I wanted to talk about the, I wanted to talk about the art um, because that, that in many ways is the fascinating part of this to me. The, the character of Kin who just 
has to try to express these things. You know, he he he, he seems driven to to get his ideas, feels, whatever. He he he's driven to have other people feel the things that he wants them to feel. He thinks it's important, and we don't really ever find out why he thinks it's important, but. This is but perhaps that's something that Neil takes as self-evident that that feeling is living, and that the state of apathy mm-hmm. that the audience and indeed most of the kind of high drive executives are in isn't living. So we see Nat. You know, we see very different reactions between Nat and Mish when he shows them the the pictures, which frankly don't do anything for me. But um, from an artistic level. Maybe uh, that's because we're not seeing them in color. It could be. Maybe in color with a bright red blood or whatever was probably all over them. Oh, I would have loved to have seen the death scenes in color. Because I bet that was a really beautiful shade of BBC blood red. I mean, they were <laughs> they were liberally applying it all over the place. So I, I assume they were trying to show off the show off the color the, TV. The death of Kin, Kin Hodder. Oh, well, and Grills at the end. He was, he was oh, pretty yes. hacked up, too. Um, yes. um but yeah, the the fact that that Nat is just enraptured of it, and say what you will of his acting, at least I got that out of it. He he's 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 fascinated by it. He's genuinely oh, yeah. having some, and Mish is is repulsed by them. And but it's feeling. It's all feeling. It's all feeling. Both both ways. They're both it's getting tension. something. But tension. one is one is drawn by it. Even though he doesn't understand, what are his words? Um, it's like remembering something that you can't. Uh, it's like something you remember that you've never seen. How does it yes. do this to me? And 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 that he can't describe because he doesn't have the words for he it. Doesn't have the words for it because they've lost them from their from their vocabulary. Um, and and yet, I think we've we've not mentioned this but as we go further into the live life show first off laser as uh, some of his acting um there at one point when he's there really late at night watching the show and he's you know running his thumb across his fingers he's not just overseeing this he's into it yeah and as the show progresses all the high drives are in there watching this show too they're all getting excited by it as well and i think what they're showing is that even you know, even in the end, the people who make these things are going to be taken over by them. You know, yes. it's it's the subversion yeah. of the BBC, if you will. Well, yes. Although it's always it's always it seems to be part of it that the 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 high drives themselves, mm-hmm. yeah, do not but, want tension. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. They're 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 handling it with drugs and and you know having being content because they've got everything. I also think it's interesting that. By the end, Mish seems to actually be, I don't want to say empathizing, because that's not the right word, but she's into Dini. She clearly didn't like Dini at mm-hmm. the beginning, partially because of a jealousy angle. But, you know, by the end of it, she's like, wow, that Dini, she's, you know, she's rooting for her. It, she's she's invested. And uh, it, it really is a, it, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating piece of television. I, I. You couldn't remake it, you know? You, you <laughs> couldn't refilm don't, this. Don't and, say that. Well, I mean, obviously you could, but I mean, it wouldn't, it, it doesn't, if somebody put that out now, you'd think it was a broad parody, not yeah, a satire. I mean, it would, be, it, w- it would be impossible to make a good remake of it. Yeah, and and I think it gets, it's probably gotten better with age, as as we pointed, because 
now we can look at it and go, well, they didn't know this, and yet, so they're so they're not parodying it. They're not looking at Survivor and Big Brother and going, I'm going to make a mm. show about how stupid this is. But instead, they're they're warning us. So, um, I, it, I, no, it is. It's it's one of those instant instances where. It, that kind of very clear-sighted extrapolation of the way things go. I mean, it reminds me in a very, very small way of of the day-to-day. I don't know if that made it across the pond, but it doesn't uh, ring a, bell. A, ni- a 90s comedy series that parodied the kind of way television was reported and, you know, some of the, the, the behaviour of anchors and interviewers and, in particular, the kind of crazy, crazy graphics. And it's just like... it's it's. TV news shows must have watched it and gone, hey, we could do that. Wait a minute. Now, day-to-day? Are, are we talking about, um, what was the other one that had the tomato flu and the halfway there day celebrations? You know what show I'm talking about? It's also it a sounds, news, sounds it, It's similar. also a news spoof. Um, now I'm going to look it up. Listeners, tap, tap, tap. You can hear me typing it on the flu. Broken news. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, you you have to watch that it's you have to if you can get it 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 is it is a a series of basically each episode is largely upon a theme like the tomato flu or the celebrations for halfway their day and and halfway day celebrations are the day where they celebrate the point where the world war ii was halfway over and so they're like getting veterans out there and, and asking them questions like, well, well, what did you think about on halfway day there, uh, halfway day during the war? And they're like, well, at the time, you know, we didn't know that the war was halfway over today. <laughs> you know, but, <clears throat> but it's broken up into about eight different news styles. There's, and, and I'm assuming that they're mocking the BBC and ITV and, and American television and maybe CNN and, and a few of the others and Fox News or whatever. And they have, they've broken them out and they just kind of shift in between them. Completely different graphic styles, completely different uh, announcers, a different kind of banter between the, the news readers. Uh, all of the stereotypes that they go on across. It, it, it really was a cutting show, but, but now I'm interested in this day-to-day, right? The day today, yes. The day today. Oh, the day today. Okay, <clears throat> that I have heard of. Come to think of it, I thought you said day to day as three words. That makes sense. No. <laughs> day two. Like I'm I'm living life day to day, day to day, as opposed to day to day. As to the day to day, yes. The day to day, yes. Okay, <clears throat> I have heard of that one. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. 1994. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, we have diverted off of the topic, but. Um, Yes, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I might leave it in. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Give the listeners something to look for uh, out there. Uh, let's see. Do we have anything else? I, I, I did. I, I have. I, yeah, I'm, I've fire. got more Orwell stuff. Go ahead. Okay. So, I mean, there's there's one other thing that I think is quite a a, a, a kind of clear similarity between 1984 and this, and that is the way in which. In, for me, in the in 1984, the imagery of the countryside is very much connected with Winston being able to escape from the confines of life under the party, under Big Brother, and to be able to uh, find freedom and self-expression with Julia. And l- losing that is losing that is part of the the kind of uh, the be- the betrayal, but. Um, being, being able to get away from London and out into 
into the countryside. I remember that as being quite a, a, a kind of key key element. It's one of the things that stuck in my mind from 1984. And, and, and the connection in that, in terms of his relationship with Julia, which is a, which is a much more kind of, a, a much more meaningful relationship. And in this, there are absolutely, I think, spectacular location shots. I mean, I immediately saw them and I thought, I've, I've got to find out where that is. And the 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 kind of sense in which both Deanie and Nat, partly uh, because of the you know the issue with their daughter, but also there seems there seems to be a sense in which they are they're choosing to leave behind something with which they have become disillusioned in order to to form a different kind of relationship, and their the idea of living as a family when they explain it is is seen as being something kind of novel because it's not part of the sexual relationships that they're accustomed to. So living in close proximity um, and, you know, having to do things for themselves, find their own food, keep themselves warm, etc., etc., is is portrayed as being a kind of um, ideal in this. And I find it, partly because of the, the kind of spectacular location filming, to be... Uh, be incredibly romantic <laughs> it looked miserable to me there but well it di- it didn't to me i thought that i figured it life... looked like pembrokeshire or something but <laughs> it's well okay so actually it turns out that it is the isle of man and so i hadn't actually realized that nigel neil was brought up on the isle of man okay which i found kind of quite interesting and it's quite difficult to find uh, it it's widely um, noted that the location filming was done on the Isle of Man but I was wondering okay whereabouts on the Isle of Man is it um, it turns out uh, fact fans that it's a place called Niable which is uh, a little way south of Peel so on the west coast of the island it's not somewhere I've been but I shall certainly be uh, making tracks to to go and find the actual cottage which is still standing next time I I visit the Isle of Man because I did think, ah, oh, it's just it's it's a spectacularly stunning piece of coast. It's it's beautiful, but here's the but. I got caught up in that. Nigel Neal, if 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 that is his intention of kind of saying, actually step back from all of the kind of um, high calorie, low thought uh, TV diet that you're being force fed, and as it were. Um, go back to something more real, more meaningful. And there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of a Luddite tendency coming out here. And also something that I think if this were an American show, who, you know, linking into all the survivalist stuff, this is very much like self-reliance. And I, mm. I, I see this from a distance, so I don't know how much of this is is kind of fair reflection of, of the real America. But this this whole kind of anti-federalist government um, right to bear arms nonsense. It, that, it, that's the political vibe I'm getting from it. I, I can kind of see that. I can kind of see that. Um, you know, again, we're, we are looking at something where in a show where he is perhaps taking things to, you know, I hope even he was considering it a ridiculous extreme to make the point that 
saying, okay, well, get me out of here and get me a real life, that means getting rid of all technology. Mm-hmm. It isn't quite what he was trying to say we should do, but, you know, it serves, no, the, I'm not it sure serves the narratives of the story because... It's the way, it's the way it comes across. It's, it's, it's the, and this may be more about me because you didn't get the same thing, but it's the romance of it and the appeal after the kind of sterility of life in the life for the high drives in in their kind of um, luxuriant but apathetic. Uh, it's the random. Everything of it. everything is provided for. Everything is provided for, and everything is you know they they have what they need. Everything is automatically produced. They don't have to work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they are then cast away on this island. And the harsh reality of it is that if they if they don't learn very quickly how to feed themselves they're going to die and they might well die anyway because life is dangerous and random harsh yeah and random and random that was the word they they use we need random yeah so and and you know i think you could make an argument that says technology is the thing that has removed randomness from our lives yes so I'm sure it's there. I'm, I'm, I mean, I say I'm not sure how much of it is is me and how much of it is Neil, but there is definitely something there. Which <laughs> but is, when you're, but when which it's is, art, which is luddite in its nature, where he, well, but he is saying, you know, but the, you, you bring the, yourself to. I mean, any good piece of art, you bring yes. some of yourself into it in the interpretation. So it doesn't matter whether it's yes. you or him. <laughs> and 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 he and he, I'm sure, would be the first to argue that. But his choice of art is. He's painting, and so although I think he is probably going to consider his own work as art, and his argument in this is, dear BBC, employ me more because I do good stuff, and his prescience is the BBC are not going to use as much of my stuff as they should because they're much more interested in the rubbish. Um, but still, what what there seems to be there is a criticism of uh, permissiveness, and uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure I agree with that, and a, a romanticizing of a, a backwards-looking view of the things that he perceives us to have lost. All of which, even over here, is very much in line with the kind of right-wing view of the social conservatives. Um, the 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 kind of the kind of people who believe that the, the rot set in in the 1960s, but but you know what we even even what we're seeing now with with uh, well you know they they that they shouldn't be permitting gay marriage that all we need to do is leave the European Union and we can go back to the 1950s and everything will be fine again. Yeah, yeah. I, I have uh, Nigel Neal was uh, also the Stone Tape, right? Yes, he yeah. was. I mean, I have always gotten the impression that Nigel Neal, and I don't know this for a fact, and so this is my supposition, I've always gotten the impression that he is probably an unpleasant individual that I would not get along with. Uh, I don't know that he was an unpleasant individual from what I've read. I mean, obviously I haven't met him, but I'm pretty sure there's a high chance you wouldn't get along with him because most people didn't seem to. Right. And and so... uh, you know, it, it, one of the things that it, that amazes me and that maybe even provides me a little bit of optimism for the world is that you can you can take somebody like that and perhaps not agree with them as a person, and yet they can still produce something like this that if you oh, gosh, look at, absolutely. you can take something from 
that does have meaning and and that does have uh, uh, yeah, something to I, make you I think. And I don't want to watch stuff that I agree with all the time. I don't necessarily want to, you know, only be exposed to, for want of a better term, left wing art. And I, you know, I, Dirty Harry is a great film. I love it. Um, also, I think it's quite I just made my day. <laughs> but <laughs> you're asking yourself, did I fire five shots or did I fire six? Um, yeah, the, I mean, the thing about Nigel Neal is that even even the people who so admired him, he didn't seem to reciprocate because I was reading the um, piece that uh, Mark Gatiss wrote shortly after he died. And of course, Mark Gatiss, a huge fan of his work, and you can see how much the influence is there, but he was also involved in not an original Nigel Neal, but the restaging of the Quatermass experiment. Right. Because... Quatermass was broadcast as live. Recording it was an afterthought. I think they did make recordings of it, but certainly episodes three and four are no longer with us. And in 2005, they staged it live again. I saw that. It, well, I saw it too, live. I watched and it I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, David Tennant was in it as well. Mm-hmm. And um, Neil was apparently a, a consultant on it. Didn't like it. <laughs> Or as, or as Gates says, you know, he was, he was very critical of it. And it doesn't really seem to temper Gates' admiration for the man, but he clearly was a very difficult man to please and difficult to get on with. <laughs> another another um, little Nigel Neal fact, I fa- uh, this one I did know before, but I some, for some reason keep forgetting it, um, was that he was married to Judith Kerr. Name who, does ring a bell. Well, you may, you may have come across her as a, a, an author of books for very young children, so... Megan Morg, anyone? Uh, again, I don't know. I don't know whether these would have crossed the pond, but um, I, I remember it. I, no, I don't want to rub this in. Maybe, t- maybe too late for you in your own childhood, um, but certainly for your kids, if it had, if it had crossed the pond. No, no, doesn't doesn't ring any bells. Also, uh, when Hitler stole Pink Rabbit, uh, which is a uh, sounds like a classic, but no, <laughs> it's it's a very very good. Um, I think semi-autobiographical, uh, you know, wartime piece. Oh, um, I can, okay. I can totally understand. I can get that from that title now that I think about it. Her hardships as a child because of Hitler. Am I right? Indeed. Okay. Indeed. And, that's and, why she lost you know, her hi- rabbit. Hi- Got it. Yeah, as a Jew hiding from the Nazis, etc. Um, really, really good children's author. Her work would, uh, at least at face value, appear to share no particular themes with anything Neil has produced. But then... I guess why should it? It was just one of the one of those interesting curiosities. Yeah, two mm. two artists who you admire, um, and they turn out to be married. So there you go. I, I had one other thing I just wanted to mention um, the point out in the show, and that is the scene where the girl Ketan is is dying, and of course they don't know she's dying. I mean, I suspect they fear it, but you know they don't understand that she's going to die of that infection, and when he's trying to tell her a story and of course he just doesn't he doesn't have that which i think is fascinating that the producer of a tv show can't even make up a story i mean that that's the bankruptcy of their imagination hmm. uh, and and their conditioning although laser seems to be able to kind of together. yeah put the pieces in place for action but it, i i appreciate the scene and i i took great care never to use the word love in my recap because they don't have it no. it's not there 
I, I, he's, he's I like trying it. so desperately to convey to her the depth of his feeling, and he can't because he hasn't got the words, and he just repeats over and over, I like you, I like you, I like you. And it's yeah. such a, it's such a, in a way, over-the-top and weird scene to see a father over his sick child just, just saying, I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you, over and over again. But it's powerful about what, what these people have lost, too. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't want that to pass. But I think we have probably beat this one to death. Uh, oh, I don't do know. I, supplemental I, I show could, again. <laughs> I'm sure I could go on chatting about it for hours, but I do know we've done an hour and a half already, so yeah. it would <clears throat> seem wise to draw things to a close. So uh, on, on balance, then, worthy of uh, people trying to find and, and watch, do you think? Oh, absolutely. And oh, so I've, I will mention something else I noticed in passing, because um, this was... This was uh, issued on DVD, so it, mm. it was it was re- rediscovered, or you know the the print was recovered, and it was issued on DVD. But it now I just checked because we've been meaning to watch this for ages. But the DVD now seems to be very difficult to get hold of. Um, and one of the things that I've become conscious of is, uh, you know, partly through watching the the uh, last games that were hosted here, is that is that the Olympic Committee is incredibly, incredibly protective of all things to do with it. So I wonder how they reacted to the fact that as soon as I saw those opening titles, they used the Olympic rings. They did. They did. And you think, God, that... Maybe they got away with issuing that on DVD in 2003, but would they still be able to do that? And I, I'm probably being paranoid. It's probably just, you know, it was a, it was a BFI print and the BFI have, have uh, produced a number of DVDs of, of culturally significant but not necessarily high-selling, shall we say, uh, films and things. And so it was probably a limited run and it's it's out of print. But definitely, I would say, it's worth tracking down and... I'm I'm already ready to give it a rewatch. So yeah, I am, I, and I gave a longer recap because it's going to be difficult for people to find. <laughs> it is, although although I would, I would say although getting a legitimate copy on DVD is challenging, the enterprising amongst you may find another way, and I shall say no more. So, yeah, say no more. Yes, there there may be trends that were not uh, predicted by Nigel Neal. In television programming out there <laughs> for you. So, anyway, Simon, thank you for joining me for this. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our extended discussion, and I hope you will join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol come join the conversation on facebook or twitter all episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com our music is fight the future by amber wolf this has been a lone locust production